0: Welcome back to Quantitative Methods Psychometrics in Public Service and today the lecture will be covering chapter four from Michael Fur's psychometrics text and chapter four is on test dimensionality and factor analysis and we're going to start with a discussion of test dimensionality which is going to be guided by three core issues or three core questions The first is the number of dimensions reflected in a set of test items. The second is the degree of association among a test dimensions. So how many different dimensions is the test measuring? What's the relationship across those dimensions? And the psychological meaning of a test dimension. And these three questions are gonna have implications for how a test is scored, evaluated, and used. And then we're gonna move on to a discussion of factor analysis. And there's a lot here on factor analysis. We're gonna take a pretty high level, uh, kind of abstract view of factor analysis, what it is, how it helps us test dimensionality, how it helps us uh, understand the meaning of the test dimensions, and we'll work through what that does. I once in grad school was set about on a mission of figuring out factor analysis all by myself and the, uh, the statistical components of it, and there's a lot there, and I think we will avoid some of the more... Uh, deeper statistical issues and instead give an overview of what factor analysis is and what it can do for us. There's going to be a number of examples running throughout your book. I'm going to focus on the actual concepts, but uh, the book runs with the example of if you're trying to measure six different things on a test, for example, talkative, assertive, imaginative, Creative, outgoing, and intellectual. And if those were the things you're interested in, how many different dimensions of things do those uh, constructs represent? Are they all one thing? Are they all personality? Are they introversion and extroversion? Are they extroversion and then openness to new experiences? What are the actual concepts, the 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 actual dimensions that are giving rise to those concepts? So again, there are at least three fundamental psychometric questions regarding the dimensionality of a test, as Fur tells us, and the answers to these questions have important Implications for evaluating the psychometric properties of any behavioral test, for appropriately scoring a test, and for the proper interpretation of the test scores. And on page 74 in your book, uh, there's a nice figure 4.1 that highlights these questions. Uh, You start with question 1, how many dimensions does the test have? If it only has one dimension, the type of scale is a unidimensional scale. Or unit, uh, yeah, a unidimensional unit test. If it has two or more dimensions, uh, then question two is, are the dimensions correlated? If not, you have a multidimensional uh, scale with uncorrelated dimensions. And if so, you have a multidimensional scale with correlated dimensions. We'll talk a little bit more about those things. And then the third question is, what is the psychological meaning of the dimensions? And one of the things the chart highlights there is that uh, exploratory factor analysis can be helpful in answering all three of these questions. So we're going to have some guesses about these, uh, some hypotheses about these things, and then uh, factor analysis will allow us to examine the actual correlations among the items and to examine more carefully with statistical data what are the dimensions of the test. Okay. Test dimensionality. first says, similarly, if we have a psychological test that yields some kind of score, then we would like to think of the score as a value representing a single psychological feature or attribute, some some unobserved psychological attribute. But We want it to represent one single psychological feature that we can think about. If it represents a bunch of different things, it gets really hard to interpret it. So a score on an inventory of items should reflect one and only one psychological dimension. And Ferg goes on to say, as a general rule, but not always, when we measure a physical or psychological attribute of a of an object or a person, we intend to measure a single attribute of that object or person. So a bit of this is going to be how do we best to get how do we know or how do we get at measuring the psychological attribute we might think of intelligence we might think of um, extroversion versus introversion we might think of um, job motivation job satisfaction Um, and we might want to know something about one of those psychological attributes and to figure out whether we are looking at just one psychological attribute or one dimension there. Um, Factor analysis is going to help us with that. But again, to begin with, we're going to hypothesize or make guesses about how many dimensions we believe we have, whether or not it is likely that they are correlated. And then what what do we actually know? What's the psychological meaning? But a big piece of this also is going to be how do you score the test? And that's gonna be one of the things that changes across a unidimensional test versus a multidimensional test with uncorrelated dimensions compared to a multidimensional test with uncorrelated dimensions. And beginning to think about that, Furr highlights that combining test scores from two independent psychological attributes produces a total score that has no clear meaning. So imagine if you measured job satisfaction and then you also measured um, extroversion. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to add those two scores together. What would you then have? So, but you, usually when you have multiple items, multiple test questions, multiple survey items, you are going to want to know how to score them, and the item responses are usually combined in some way, um, as Fer tells us, usually by computing one or more scores of some kind, and these combined scores are used to reflect the psychological attribute or attributes of interest. These scores are referred to as composite scores, which you may mean composite scores, which you may remember from previous lecture. And ideally a composite score reflects one and only one dimension. However, a test may include items that reflect more than a single dimension. So for a composite score say of job satisfaction, you might have several items, several survey items that you think represent job satisfaction. Uh, How much do you enjoy your job? Might be one. Overall, how satisfied are you with your job? Might be one. Um, You can think of a couple of different items that might represent job satisfaction, and ideally if they're all measuring job satisfaction, you could add them together and have an overall score of job satisfaction. But within the same test, you might also care about measuring someone's um, extroversion. And you wouldn't want to add the scores together from extroversion to job satisfaction because that wouldn't make a lot of sense. But some tests, this might make more sense. Uh, you might be trying to measure someone's knowledge of, say, psychometrics, and you might design a test with, say, twenty-five questions, and all of those questions might be designed to rec- uh, to uh, score um, or evaluate your knowledge on statistics, on psychometrics in particular. And if all those items did a good job of measuring relevant properties of psychometrics, then you could take all those 25 questions, add the score together, and have an overall test score. But again, you might want a test that measures different things. And if so, when you're measuring those different things, it doesn't make a lot of sense to add them together. All right, this brings us back to the three dimensionality questions from the flowchart that I highlighted a moment ago. And the questions again are, first, how many dimensions are reflected in the test items? And as first says, this issue is important because each dimension of a test is likely to be scored separately, which I was just highlighting, with each dimension requiring its own psychometric analysis. The second core dimensionality question is this, if a test has more than one dimension, then are those dimensions correlated with each other? Again, go back to our example of job satisfaction and extroversion. Are those things likely correlated or not? And again, here, it may not immediately be clear to you. And some of this is going to, in the initial stages and throughout as well, rely on expert judgment, the expert judgment that goes along with some of our factor analysis. Third, if a test has more than one dimension, let's say our... Test with job satisfaction and extroversion, then what are those dimensions? That is, what psychological attributes are reflected by the test dimensions? So what do we mean by job satisfaction? Did we do a good job of measuring it? And factor analysis will tell us a little bit about that. And what is extroversion? And did we do a good job of measuring that? And how do we know that it is extroversion? Okay, so answers to these questions, as again highlighted in the flowchart, is going to give us unidimensional tests uh, or multidimensional tests with either correlated dimensions or uncorrelated dimensions. We're going to start with, if if the answer to the first question is there is one dimension, then we have a unidimensional test. When a psychological test includes items that reflect only a single attribute, as far tells us, of a person, this means that responses to those items are driven only by that attribute, and to some degree, as we will see in later chapters, random measurement error. In such cases, in such cases, we say that the test is unidimensional because its items reflect only one psychological dimension, Una, one. Um, and we would want the test items of the questions for unidimensional tests to have the property, as far says, of conceptual homogeneity. Responses to each item would be a function of the same psychological attribute. Let's say that we're not interested in both job satisfaction and extroversion after all, just job satisfaction. We have a unidimensional test of just job satisfaction. Then every survey item, every test item, every question item that we use We want it to be designed in such a way that it only is reflecting someone's job satisfaction. And figure 4.2 in your book on page 77 highlights what this looks like visually. You have the psychological attribute, in this case job satisfaction, and it is driving the answers to each of your questions that you have about job satisfaction. For a unidimensional test, as first says, only a single score is computed, reflecting the single psychological attribute measured by the test. That is, all the items are combined in some way, usually through averaging, summing, or counting, to form a composite or total score. You can think here again about job satisfaction. Maybe you've identified five questions that you think represent job satisfaction, You have those on a scale of one to five from strongly disagree to strongly agree. And then you could take the average response of those. You could add them together and have a total score for job satisfaction. In terms of psychometric evaluation, psychometric quality is evaluated for the single score that is obtained from a unidimensional test, as FERS says. And then in wrapping up with unidimensional test here, first says for unidimensional test, reliability and validity should be estimated and evaluated for the total score produced by the test. In terms of test use, the test users compute and interpret the total score produced by a unidimensional test. So again, in a unidimensional test, you can add all those scores together, take the average, count them, and get a value that you believe represent some amount of the underlying psychological attribute. All right, if we say, wait, our test has more than one dimension, we're not just unidimensional, we're multidimensional. And this could be an example where we are measuring uh, job satisfaction and um, extroversion, but maybe those things are uncorrelated Uh, they're not immediately clear why they would be correlated. So let's pick an example for this, uh, for the section here on multidimensional tests with correlated dimensions and say, maybe we're wanting to measure job satisfaction and intrinsic motivation, all right? How intrinsically motivated are you to do things? It might make sense that intrinsic motivation is related to job satisfaction. Maybe the more intrinsically motivated you are, the more satisfaction you have with your job, particularly if it provides opportunities for you to realize your intrinsic motivation. So in this case, in this situation, let's assume that the dimensions are correlated and this is also known as tests with a higher order order factors Um, and so you might think of something that is both driving job satisfaction and intrinsic motivation and in this case maybe that is your overall motivation your overall motivation is driving both your job satisfaction and your intrinsic motivation for example. okay. Um, when we have this uh, multidimensional test with correlated factors, um, the groups of questions are often called subtests. And they each reflect a different facet of the higher order factor, the overall thing, overall motivation in this case. And then our subtests would be job satisfaction and intrinsic motivations. And uh, typically, as Furr says, each subtest has its own subtest score. So you might think that we have a score on both job satisfaction and intrinsic motivation. And in principle, each subtest, as Furr says, is itself unidimensional. And the questions in each subtest are conceptually homogeneous. So if you look at figure 4.3 in your book from page 78, you might think of the general psychological attribute being overall motivation, Specific psychological attribute A being job satisfaction. Specific psychological attribute B being intrinsic motivation. If a subtest is unidimensional, as it should be, then the subtest score is interpretable with regard to a single psychological attribute. In addition, as far it says, to scores for each subtest, multiple... multiple Multidimensional tests with correlated dimensions are often scored in a way that produces a total score combined across several subtests. That is, subtest scores are often combined with each other. Again, either through summing or by averaging the score to produce a total test. So let's say you don't buy my job satisfaction and intrinsic motivation, and let's use extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation. Both of those are represented of flow from overall motivation, maybe. Maybe we believe that more than job satisfaction. And in this case, once you have a score on your intrinsic motivation questions and a total score on your extrinsic motivations, uh, you might want to sum those together or average them all together for an average overall motivation. You can do this in general if the dimensions are correlated again this uh, higher level factor of overall motivation is generally called a higher order factor or a second order factor because it is a more general level or order than the specific factors or attributes as first says and in terms of test evaluation, multidimensional tests are different from unidimensional tests. It is possible, as Fur says, that a multidimensional test could have some subtests that have reasonable psychometric quality and other subtests that have poor psychometric quality. So again, going back to our example, motivation, intrinsic motivation, and extrinsic motivation, maybe we have really good measures of intrinsic motivation, but kind of crappy ones of extrinsic motivation each of those subtests will have its own psychometric qualities. Again, in addition, a multidimensional test with correlated dimensions may have a total test score that is computed across its subtests. In terms of test use, as far as multidimensional tests offer a variety of options. Test users could use any or all of the subtest scores depending on their relevance to the research or practical context. In addition, test users could use a total test score from a test with correlated dimensions if such a score is computed and has acceptable psychometric properties. So again, our intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation example, we could just look at intrinsic motivation. We could just look at extrinsic motivations. But if we determine that they both have good, strong psychometric properties, then we could potentially add them together, combine them for overall motivation. Okay, moving from multidimensional tests with correlated dimensions, let's look at multidimensional tests with uncorrelated dimensions. And here, let's go back to our original example of job satisfaction and intrinsic motivation. Maybe these things aren't correlated or are not significantly correlated. Because um, lots of other things affect both of these factors. So maybe we don't believe that they're correlated. So we would hypothesize that they are uncorrelated dimensions. And um, you can look at figure 4.4, multidimensional test with uncorrelated dimensions. This, and this way, there's no higher order factor driving these. It's just specific psychological attribute A maybe job satisfaction, and specific psychological attribute B, maybe intrinsic motivation, and the responses that we're using, the survey items to measure, to capture someone's level of those things. With regard to scoring, evaluation, and use, as Fer says, multidimensional tests with uncorrelated dimensions are similar to multidimensional tests with correlated dimensions, with one important exception. For tests with uncorrelated dimensions, no total score is computed. (laughs) That is, a score is obtained for each dimension, but the dimension scores are not combined to compute a total test score. Here, we would not combine our score of job satisfaction to intrinsic motivation because they're not correlated. Okay, the final part of this is understanding the psychological meaning of test dimensions, which was question three from the original flowchart. First says, for test dimensions to be used and interpreted accurately, test developers and evaluators must conduct research that reveals the psychological attribute that is represented by each test dimension. So we need to know... How good of measures do we have for each test dimension that we say we have? And the way to do this is factor analysis. Factor analysis allows us to examine the dimensionality of a test, it allows us to examine the correlation of those dimensions on a test, and how good are our measures of each dimension. From the beginning, it's important to note, or useful to note, that there are two different types. We're going to focus mainly on one for today and we'll return to the other. The first is exploratory factor analysis and the second is confirmatory factor analysis. But we're going to look at exploratory today. So the basic things to understand with factor analysis is it uses a correlation matrix um, and manipulates it in a way that gives us some factor loadings and some eigenvalues. And d- doing this in practice, you can start with looking at the correlation matrix as uh, table uh, what do we have Table 4.1? <coughs> and seeing how highly correlated any individual items are. And the book gives an example of the talkative, assertive, outgoing, creative, imaginative, and intellectual, and creates some data that shows hey, talkative, assertive, and uh, outgoing are highly correlated. Creative, imaginative, and intellectual are highly correlated. But well, you can look in that table and see that those items are not correlated well together. Talkative and creative have zero, talkative and imaginative have zero. Now, in practice, data is much messier than this, but kind of see here, eyeballing this, that looks like there are two different factors. One is driving a relationship between talkative, assertive, and outgoing. One for creative, imaginative, and intellectual. So as first says, by scanning an inner-item correlation matrix in this way, we can begin to understand a test dimensionality. Essentially, we try to identify sets of items that go together. Sets of items that are relatively strongly correlated with with each other, but weakly correlated with other items. Each set of relatively high correlated items represents a psychological dimension or factor. Her goes on to determine whether the factors are correlated with each other. We could examine the pattern of correlations between the two sets, between the sets, That is, the potential correlations between factors are based on the correlations between items in different sets. So going back to Table 4.1, you can imagine that these two factors are not correlated at all with this this data because uh, they're highly correlated items that are correlated are highly correlated and items uh, that aren't, aren't at all. So again, talkative, assertive, and outgoing have relatively high correlations. Creative, imaginative, and intellectual have relatively high correlations, but creative, imaginative, and intellectual items have no correlation with talkative, assertive, and outgoing. So we could be reasonably confident that in this example, those two factors are not correlated. However, if there were some correlation across the items on these two factors that are correlated highly together, you might uh, begin to suspect that the factors are correlated. For example, in the um, example I was using a moment ago between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation as measuring overall motivation, it might be the case that some of the items on the intrinsic scale that you come up with and the extrinsic scale are related when you're when you have a high score on in intrinsic motivation items, you might also have some high scores on extrinsic motivation items. This would suggest that the scores were correlated, that the dimensions of the test are correlated as well. If you think to the other example, maybe job satisfaction and intrinsic motivation, maybe those items aren't particularly correlated. And across those two scales, and in that case, the factors would not be correlated so this is sort of known as the uh, you know an eyeballing approach, but when you have a lot of items or the data is a messy um, this really complicates this process, and this is when exploratory factor analysis uh, comes into play, and it makes this process upon abun- uh, significantly easier easier all right on to conducting interpreting and exploratory factor analysis first thing um, you do uh, you can see the flow chart on figure 4.5 is you choose an extraction method all right this is the way in which you're going to create the correlation matrices this is the way you're going to um, set about how to identify the factors. Uh, There's a few choices that are common. These include principal access factoring, which is probably the most common and generally accepted. There's maximum likelihood factor analysis and principal component analysis. Strictly speaking, principal component analysis is not uh, technically a factor analysis, but it's often used in statistical software. I would recommend staying away from it and using the principal access factoring as the most common um, approach. And often these answer, these extraction methods will give pretty similar answers, uh, but it depends on the structure of the data. Now, after you've picked an extraction method, you have to identify the number of factors and extract them or tell the software that you're only gonna keep a certain number of factors and the way we use this is uh, the way we try to uh, use factor analysis to identify how many factors is to use the eigenvalues Eigenvalues um, have highly technical definitions that was part of the challenge I had in exploring the mechanics behind this this the, the actual statistical formulas behind this. But essentially, um, the higher the eigenvalue, the more of the variance that factor is explaining. And so higher values mean stronger factors, roughly. But when trying to figure out how many factors to keep, taking some of your intuition, but you're also looking at uh, a scree plot. And a scree plot shows the drops in the eigenvalues relative to the previous eigenvalue. So if you look at table 4.6, for example, on page 86 in your book, you can see that uh, the initial eigenvalues for factor 1 and 2 are pretty similar. They're both around 2. And then there's this big drop for the third one it is 0.563 and at whatever point you find this big drop off you want to go to the previous factor and that's generally a good rule for how many factors there are so in this one you have an eigenvalue for the first factor of 2.195 then 2.173 then 0.563 for the third factor There's just a big drop for the third factor so it's probably much much less important maybe isn't uh, measuring a dimension or measuring a, a factor. So in this case, you might take the first two factors. All right. Um, if you only have one factor, you examine the item factor associations, the factor loadings, which are essentially can be thought of as uh, as roughly correlations, uh, between the items and the factor. And if there's a clean, simple structure to that uh, one factor, then you have a clear unidimensional scale. However, as with the example here in the figure 4.6, if you have multiple factors, then you wanna make a judgment as to whether you think those factors are correlated or not. And then you rotate the factors, and you can choose to rotate the factors and say, hey, we're going to force these factors to be uncorrelated because we think they're uncorrelated. That's an orthogonal rotation, and the example of that is a varimax rotation or an oblique rotation, which means that you think the variables can be correlated or you want to allow the, the dimensions. Let's try that again. You can use an oblique rotation if you think your factors or your dimensions are correlated or you want to allow for them to be correlated an oblique rotation will actually if the factors are uncorrelated still um, still show that and the common example of this is called a promax but let's say you start with an orthogonal rotation because you think your factors are not correlated you can examine the item factor associations again the factor loadings how strongly is each survey item related to the factor and if there's a clean simple structure say you found two dimensions they weren't correlated and the items for the dimension one say job satisfaction aren't related to the items on intrinsic motivation um, then you have a clear multi-dimensional scale with uncorrelated dimensions. But let's say you have intrinsic and extrinsic motivation as the things that the factors that you were trying to uh, capture with your test. You think these things are correlated. You use an oblique rotation. An example of this from statistical softwares is Promax. You examine the item factor associations, the factor loadings. If you have a clear, clean, simple structure, Intrinsic motives mostly load highly on intrinsic factor. Extrinsic items mostly load on extrinsic, but with some correlation across them, then you have a clear multidimensional scale with correlated dimensions. At any point in this process where you still have an ambiguous structure, you can go back and try a different number of factors also, if any of the items have, any of the survey items are really just loading poorly, they have close to a zero loading. I think the cutoff in the book is a roughly a 0.3, which is, uh, is a common cutoff point. You can also um, drop those items if they're not good at measuring what you think they should be measuring. So, there are some other ways to think about going back to one of the first questions about uh, how many factors. There's a few different ways that the book talks about, but the scree plot really is the standard here. One uh, one is greater than one, um, which is there are a lot of challenges with that, so I recommend avoiding that. Uh, but these scree plots, which are plotting the eigenvalues and how they're related to one another when you see that big drop off which won't always be that clear but when you see that big drop off just go back to the the factor number before the big drop off and that's um what the data is suggesting are the the two most important factors in some cases this is not exactly clear and it starts relying some expert judgment So just know that real-world data can be messy. Some more details about rotating the factors. Um, And then at the end of the chapter, the book goes through some more details on what are these factor rotations and why they're not sort of magical poof. We're just making the thing say what we want and what they're actually doing. Um, So you can look back at the end of the chapter as well, and you'll get a bit more information on the technical pieces of the rotation. So a little bit more about factor loadings, or these item factor associations. Um, So, first, says, exploratory factor analysis presents these associations in terms of factor loadings, and each item has a loading on each factor. By examining the loadings and identifying the items that are most strongly linked to each other, we can begin to understand the factor's psychological meaning. Generally, factor loadings range between negative 1 and positive 1, kind of like correlations, if you may remember, and they are interpreted as correlations or as standardized regression weights. When using an orthogonal rotation, or when a scale has only one factor, we obtain loadings that can be seen as correlations between each item and each factor. In contrast, when we use oblique rotations, we obtain several kinds of factor loadings. For example, if we use the statistical program SPSS and we choose an oblique rotation, then we obtain pattern coefficients and structure coefficients. Ferg goes on to say, for readers who are familiar with multiple regression, pattern coefficients are the standardized regression weights produced by a regression analysis in which respondents' item responses are predicted from their levels of the underlying factors. In contrast, structure coefficients are simply correlations between respondents' item responses and their levels of the underlying factors. Fur goes on to say, when interpreting factor loadings, two pieces of information are important. First, the size of the loading indicates the degree of association between an item and a factor. Larger loadings, closer to negative 1 or positive 1, indicate stronger associations, just like with correlations when we looked at in the last chapter. More specifically, FERS says, loadings above .30 or .40 are often seen as reasonably strong, with loadings of .70 or .80 being seen as very strong. The second important piece of information is the direction of a loading, positive or negative. A positive loading indicates that people who respond with a high score on that item have a high level of the underlying factor. In contrast, a negative loading indicates that people who respond with a high score on the item have a low level on the underlying factor. And we're often looking for simple structure And in simple structure, we're wanting items to load strongly on one and only one factor. If an item doesn't load strongly on any factor, as I mentioned earlier, you might consider dropping it. Okay. We also might want to look at the associations among factors. Um... And when you use an oblique rotation, the the software will often include a correlation of each pair of factors, revealing the higher order associations among factors. So we might wanna know, for example, going going back to our intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, um, how strongly correlated are intrinsic and extrinsic motivations with one another? Because we should only create a total score when the dimensions are correlated with each other to a meaningful degree all right again the end of the chapter takes a an additional deeper perspective on factors factor loadings and rotations so if the rotations and factor loadings are still a bit confusing and particularly if you're good with geometry you might take a look at that section to get a little bit more clarity about what's actually going on underlying these rotations and uh, items factor items we'll look at confirmatory factor analysis uh, in chapter 12 but know it exists okay that's all for this chapter Thanks for following along on test dimensionality and factor analysis. And from here, we'll move into part two of the book, uh, into reliability. And next week, uh, and then in the next le- lecture, I'll be talking about reliability and the conceptual basis for it. Thanks for following along.